This is part three of a three-part podcast. Hey, this is T. Blankenship. Are you a fan of pie? Where there is pie at permies.com. This pie grants the user of secret access. You also get free things like videos of Wheaton Labs, the ability to add two thumbs up, two posts, and more. To get pie, go to permies.com forward slash pie to get the inside scoop of what pie can do for you. Again, that is permies.com forward slash pie. Now, I would say that, um, and and maybe I shouldn't say this now because, you know, it's Alan's turn to pick the next thing. But one of the things that a lot of people do that believe that where they are certain that they're they're making a massive difference is that they get an electric car. And I realize I'm saying this to a person who has at least two electric cars. And right. so um, the and and the thing is is that the so we so again thirty tons per year is the average adult footprint in the United States. And if you go if you switch from a standard vehicle from the average gasoline powered vehicle average to an electric vehicle that reduces your carbon footprint by two tons per year. You went from four tons per year down to two tons per year. Now, I also want to point out that that carbon footprint of two tons per year is exactly the same for a Toyota Prius. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's better to get away from gasoline entirely and go with an electric car. I agree with that entirely. Well, right. I think it's, I think it's better for reasons such as you were talking. It's better for quality of life reasons. The, the cost per mile goes way, way down. Yes. And just the convenience of never having to go to a gas station is just pretty awesome. No, no. There's, and, and we can make a whole other podcast about electric cars. Mm-hmm. At the same time, 30 tons per year, two tons per year, 100 tons per year, and the phrase, there is nothing I can do that would make a difference. Now, granted, I do want to also state that maybe we should have stated this at the very beginning. It's 30 tons per year per adult in the United States, and that's both direct and indirect. So that includes, for that adult, and includes industry. Mm-hmm. Now, I also got to say that your average environmentalist who is sure that they're doing their part and they can and they're sure of it because they can say it very loudly and over and over and over again. That they, on average, have reduced their entire carbon footprint by one ton per year. So they've gone from 30 tons per year to 29 tons per year, mm-hmm. and they have a PR campaign talking about zero carbon or zero carbon footprint, or they've done their part, things of that nature. So that's why I think it's so important to talk about the 30 tons per year. Um, now, granted, a lot of people will talk about 15 tons per year because they're just talking about your direct stuff. Um, and they, they think industry needs to clean up their act without any regard 
to their contribution to those industries. Now, um, when you have been here, Julia, and also mm-hmm. when you've been here, Alan, and and then I see Katie on this call. When Katie's been here, and there's Bo, and Bo has been here, everybody has been here, Samantha, all these people, I can see these names of people that I know that have been here. When we go out and we build something, how much cement do we use? It's no cement. Zero. And so the one of the pri- – I mean, there's a bunch of reasons to not use cement, which I think I've covered in this podcast many times, but one of them is is the carbon footprint of cement is profound. It is massive. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, all right. And for a lot of people, it's like if you're going to build a house, if – it is impossible to build a platinum lead certified building. And Alan, you are an expert on this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. How much cement do you have to use in order to build your platinum lead building? Well, I mean, you say the word have to. <laughs> oh, um, okay. Go ahead. Give me a range. What's the minimum? So here's, here's what I would say. I mean, the, the, the minimum is zero. Um, oh, has that been done? Um, yes, I believe it has. I believe there's been a full, um, full living ch- building challenge that's been done with effectively zero concrete. Um, but, um, it was also lead platinum. But I, I think that what we're, we're looking at here is basically this, you know, yes, I'm a lead credit, lead AP and LFA and so forth, uh, working with that. And, and what you're leading into is the next question, you know, you, you, so what's my next point of intervention? It would be, Buildings. Um, so on the lead, typically on the lead, uh, green associate exam is what percentage of the carbon footprint of modern civilization is in buildings and they claim 40% is, is the number they claim. Um, so the next point of intervention would be in the built environment and how we build buildings. Um, and, um, yes, there's a whole thing I'll get off into about, um, carbon cure and, 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 and basically pumping carbon into concrete as it cures and to make it more carbon neutral. It's a whole different discussion. Yeah, don't let's skip that. Let's skip that. Right. Okay, but what uh, I'm just, talking just, about is you got a big ass building that you've made. Yes. And I've been into I don't know how many platinum lead certified buildings and they're so proud and they gotta say it over and over and over again. And it's a giant cement behemoth. Yes. Now this is what I would say. You 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 remember you're you're talking to me as an engineer, and so you say, how much do you have to use, which is a very different question from how much <laughs> is used on average, okay? That is like right. a, hundreds of tons. <laughs> right. On average, remember, here's, for people who aren't familiar with this, let me kind of encapsulate lead in, a, in, in like two sentences, Okay. Lead, because lead has become the, the 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 largest internationally adopted standard, uh, pretty much for quote unquote green buildings, and so the approach that was taken by lead was approximately this: let's document exactly how awful the average building of a certain class is, and then let's give you points for making your building slightly less awful. And if you get enough points, you get a lead certification for your building, right? So it was like, oh, 
Paul, you want to build that monstrosity of an office building, and the average office building in that area would be this much of a catastrophe. <laughs> so you documented with a painful amount of paperwork that you made it 12% less cat- catastrophic, right? <laughs> yeah. Therefore, you get all these points because you have this much less nasty material in it, this much less water consumption, this much less energy usage, and so forth. And each of those things gives you points, and therefore you got enough points, and therefore your building can get a lead silver or lead gold or lead platinum certification, right? <clears throat> this is now, has this solved problems? Well, what I would say is this. It has definitely, it has definitely moved the bar. It used to yeah. be that building a lead platinum building back when people like Gary that I work with did it, you know, for like the first time in Georgia many, many years ago was very difficult because the industry didn't support it. And today building a lead platinum building is actually not that difficult because it has moved the bar in the industry. So is on, on balance, has it been good? Yes, because it has basically brought a lot of this into the industry and there's been a lot of innovation and so forth and we've made things marginally better. Has it actually addressed root cause problems? No. It's moving us in the right direction, albeit slowly. Yeah. And then what we are looking at is what is the fundamental repatterning of building buildings in such a way that like I'm working with buildings right now where my goal is that 95% plus of the building envelope comes from place. That is, it's gathered out of the local biosphere, it's patterned into a building, and then when that building is done with its life cycle, it's returned to the land in a thing that causes zero pollution. Um, and um, that, to me, is the kind of patterning we need to be thinking about um, in building buildings that really address what we're talking about at a, at a scale. So that's that, to me, is a whole different paradigm of going after buildings. And um, so I would say that, yes, this is the next intervention uh, would be in terms of actual release of carbon into, you know, and, and so forth would be to look at how we build buildings and to build them in a way that's actually sequestering instead of releasing carbon into the atmosphere. So now, um, is it fair to say that when we were doing turns on which thing it is, that that was your turn? Yes. Okay. All right. And Julia, have we, mm-hmm. the thing that you were bringing up, have we addressed that? Have we covered that thoroughly enough? Yes. No. And I'm really glad that you have gotten it out in the world, the numbers of trees that are growing well on your property. I think that's important to note. Right. And, I, and it's like, uh, uh, I came up with the thing to say about the, the apple a day. I, I came up with that, like, I don't know, uh, I'm going to guess three years ago. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying it as an example of something that somebody can do. And while we do plant a lot of trees from seed, a lot of trees from seed, um, I'm, I'm going to be the first to confess that we haven't done it as much as I would like. And, uh, if we can get, you know, 20 people in the boot camp, then, uh, I promise we will do a lot more. 
<laughs> okay. Well, I feel like there's lots of things that you're doing on Wheaton Labs that sequester carbon that aren't just growing trees from seeds. So I think a thing that most people don't understand is that if you come here and you're here for like a couple of weeks, it's a very different experience just to be here. And and I would love to get some validation of this, that mm. the way most people live their lives, even though they're they're living a very permaculture life, if you come here for a couple of weeks, you're going to go home and you're going to you're going to you're going to adopt some of the things that we do here. Um it's like you're going to see some things that are really different and and I think you're going to now do those yourself. Not everything, but some of the things. Would you agree with that? I think that's true. I would encourage anybody listening to this to consider coming out for an event or coming out just as a supper. It's really different to be there. I see Katie's got her thumbs up. Um, I know Chris has had his hand up for a while. He he wants to add something. Chris? Yeah, I was wondering uh, about the the environmental uh, consequences of rebuilding a house or a structure versus building new. Because I, I noticed there is houses empty everywhere in our area. And they just come in and they tear them down and they build a brand new one. Same thing with uh, the little factories and stuff that used to be around here. Uh, the corporations buy them and just totally annihilate them and put up these big cement buildings. Has there been a study uh, on that that gives us some kind of real numbers that, you know, is it better to recycle or is it better to tear them down? I'm, oh, yeah. Before, Alan's going to have a lot more to say about that. And before Alan gets into it, I want to jump in and I'm going to say first, the answer is it depends. Yep. Second, um, I've seen it, I don't know how many times where, um, like for example, I remember a school in Missoula called Paxson School, which was a beautiful brick building that they built to last 300 years. And then once it got to be, I think 40 years old, they tore it down and basically built the exact same thing again. Only it was a little bit bigger and it was shaped a little different and the wiring was in the walls instead of attached to the brick, you know, and it's like because somebody, so I kind of feel like part of what I want to throw into this mix is rather than shaming people and say, hey, stop making a new house and instead just reuse that old house. Rather than advocating for sacrifice and for less, I want to, I want to first and foremost say I want everybody to live their most luxuriant life. Julia, is owning a Tesla more luxuriant than the previous gasoline-fueled vehicle that you drove? Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, it's so, not it's not the car that I drive, but, yes, it's a marvelous vehicle. It is. So you've added more luxury to your life? and simultaneously decreased your carbon footprint and and improved your environmental footprint dramatically. Mm-hmm. This is what I want to advocate for. This is the thing I want to talk about. I think adding a rocket mass heater to your home will add luxury to your life. It'll add money to your pocket and simultaneously dramatically reduce your carbon footprint. Now, to get back to Chris's question, 
Chris is asking, is it better for the environment to reuse an older structure or to build new? And then I jumped in ahead of Alan and said my bit. And and I know Alan is aching to give his answer. Alan? <laughs> yeah, I would say that, um, yes, in general, refurbishing and reusing existing structures is much lower in embodied carbon, embodied energy, and embodied pollution. Okay. Now, that being said, we have we have a more complex landscape here because here is the issue. Um, I have seen instances of 800-year-old homes in places like Wales and Germany, um, which have been occupied by the same family for many, many generations, and this is it. it the it carries such a sense of place, right? Because there's history and, and so forth. And the, so this is living in a place, not just a building. The place has history and, and it's built up over time. The problem we're running into today is that we have a huge number of buildings that I tell people, well, you're going to buy a 20 year home with a 30 year mortgage. So what do you mean by that? Right? I'm like, well, the the thing is that you're going to get a 30-year mortgage on this, but after 20 years, the building has been built in such a way that it's going to require massive overhaul and repair. It's like you're not even going to get 30 years of use out of this building before the building is degraded to the point that it requires another massive infusion of capital in order to bring the building back up. So what we're seeing is this. Yes, if a building were built thoughtfully and a place was created with that building, buildings should be able to be used for hundreds of years, refurbished and renewed, and therefore the amount of embodied energy, the amount of embodied carbon, the amount of embodied pollution is very low for the life cycle of the building. Our problem is that we have gone to a building pattern in much of the Western world in which we throw together crappy buildings um, which uh, basically start to have fundamental issues after a couple of decades. Um, they um, and, and therefore what ends up happening is people come in behind it, they look at the at all the problems that are emerging in the building and they're like, well, we're not even going to try to remediate this building. We're not even going to try to repattern it and reclaim it. We're just going to tear the whole thing down and build something new because of what a mess it is. So it's like a much more complicated question. If you build all of these buildings as absolute crap and their effective life cycle is designed in, in, in with a mindset of disposability, so you build them using crappy materials and so forth, then the idea that we're going to keep on refurbishing them, well, it hasn't been working out very well. And so what I see over and over again, like I've gone to major universities where we're looking at their built environment, and you realize that the most loved building was built in the 1800s, and it's still a beautiful building, and it's still being used, and it's the one that, that the people on the campus love the most, and that there are buildings that were built in the 1980s 
that people absolutely hate. They are terrible places to be. They're built like crap, and now they're scheduled to be demolished. So it's like in order to do what we're talking about, which is to have buildings that have many uses over many generations, we have to start by building buildings with the right patterning so that that's possible. And what I would say, unfortunately, is a lot of building stock we have in a lot of the more recently developed parts of the world do not have the patterning and the building to them that's required in order to be long-term assets. They become increasing liabilities over time because of the way in which they were built in the first place. If everybody is satisfied talking about buildings, I'd like to move on to my next coupon in today's conversation. And because we are short on time, this might be our last topic. But I also think that this is the topic that everybody wants to talk about. And so it might end up being the longest one. Um, are we good to stop talking about buildings now? Uh, Chris, has your question been adequately addressed? Yes, thank you very much. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about the thing where if I try to talk about reducing one's own carbon footprint, there is a vocal minority that has a very strong opinion. And their opinion is so strong, they generally won't allow me to present any other data. Um, and there, and because I like the idea that somehow this podcast gets listened to more than average, even though it probably won't happen, I'm going to bypass this, that, that particular group entirely and watch as I carefully word what I'm about to say. When it comes to food choices, and you, and I'm sure everybody in on this podcast is giggling right now because they know, they know what I'm dodging. <laughs> but when it comes to food choices, first of all, 30 tons per year is the average American adult footprint. Um, and food choices, the average adult carbon footprint for food choices is 10.5 tons per year. So for whatever it is that you do with your food choices, it can impact 10.5 tons per year. And that's just, that's just your carbon footprint. So this is tied to climate change. Um, and, and the thing that I want to say is grow a garden. If you grow a garden and with your garden, you can meet half of your food needs that cuts your carbon footprint by five tons more, five tons per year. And so that's more than getting the electric car. It's not as great as the whole heat thing, but that's another bit. We're just talking about food choices, but, but, but a garden, a big, glorious, magnificent garden. If you can grow enough food in your garden such that it feeds, it, it provides you half the food that you eat in a year that cuts your carbon footprint by five tons. And further, I want to say, 
that the average American urban lot, which is about a quarter of an acre, that on that quarter of an acre, without a lot of effort, you can easily grow enough food to feed one person to meet to meet half of their food needs. So I'd say so I started saying that wrong. Um but with with that quarter of an acre lot, with a house taking up a big chunk of that quarter acre lot, you can grow enough food such that it meets half of the food needs of one person. Fairly easily. Not too, not too challenging to do. Uh, and there are people that can go very, very far. In fact, if you're importing a ton of stuff, which I don't want to even, you know, talk about that, you can, you can grow even more food. But now we're talking about you're losing some of your carbon footprint by shuffling things around so dramatically. But I'm going, I'm going to state this thing. That your, that, that the footprint for the food for one person is 10.5 tons. And it took me a lot of math to get there. And I gotta tell you, Sean and I worked on that for probably a couple of hundred hours for the Better World book. So I am, I am very confident in this number 10.5 hours. So let me start with Alan. I've made a statement about growing a garden and about food and carbon footprint. Do you have a response to that? Yeah, I I would say I have not had the opportunity to spend that many hours doing the actual math. I would say that, um, however, <laughs> um, you come down to it and you realize that, that, that there, it's been pretty well documented that because of the way that industrial agriculture grows food that it's somewhere between 15 and 20 calories of energy that is used in the industrial food production process for every one calorie of food value that goes that gets produced okay mm-hmm. um so it's and, and i think that's probably a little bit low for reasons so it's something like 20 to 1 like we use to get one calorie of food on your plate, we use like 20 calories of energy, and the vast, vast majority of that is fossil fuel energy, okay? So that right there tells you the amount of carbon that is being produced as a byproduct of the way that industrial agriculture produces our food. Um, and so your number doesn't surprise me too much. Um, and, um, I would say that, yes, I would agree that food production is a number, it, it definitely falls within the top couple of leverage points for addressing, um, carbon. Uh, I would agree with that. So I know that when we did the math, we were hyper-focused on what percentage is organic and what percentage is non-organic. Uh, we focused on the um, uh, fertilizer uh, being, um, you know, uh, mined and or extracted or w- whatever was the carbon footprint to get the fertilizer to exist combined with 
getting the fertilizer moved to the farm. Yep. And, and then the amount of petroleum or, I'm sorry, carbon, the amount of carbon that was involved in getting the petroleum distributed across the farm. Um, it, and we, we did a bunch on that. Then, of course, there's the harvest, and then we focused on getting it to the stores. There's a significant carbon footprint for the store to exist. We yep. added a little something in for the employees to get to the store and basically go, you know, commute. So the employee, the grocery store employees commute. We added a little something in for that. I mean, to tell you that the math was incredibly psychotically detailed is an understatement. We went yes. into a lot of, a lot of stuff in order to, to come up with. It. So, so at the same time, there are some people that believe that the carbon footprint for your food choices is much, much larger than 10.5 tons. But after we did very detailed, thorough math, we came up with 10.5 tons. Yeah, it's always the challenge when you do these. Some people make all kinds of simplifying assumptions and leave out all kinds of factors. And when you do this kind of calculation, you are you are basically – it's an exercise in where do you draw lines of boundaries and what assumptions do you make? And so in a system as complex as the global, you know, um, industrial system, making all those assumptions and drawing all those boundaries is actually quite complex. It's really difficult to put a number onto it. Um, but, um, so that's, that's what I'm saying. It's, 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 it's a lot of work to do it. And then of course, people are always going to argue with you about where you drew your boundaries and what assumptions you made. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, but I suspect that if, um, a hundred different people did this level of work, that their number would come in at maybe 10.2, maybe 10.7. And we came in with 10.5. And, and basically our, our thought was we will share our math and we will, and, and bring it on. Come on down, baby. You know, we did, we did our math and you bet you can, you can contest a lot of it or whatever. And in the end, I think we stand behind 10.5. And how about we, how about if we, we said this, even if somebody were convinced that your answer were wrong plus or minus 50%, which is quite a bit. Yeah. Even if that were the case, this would still, food production would still come in. That's one of the top couple factors to be talked about. Yes. Yes. And I'm going to say a thing for which I will gather a lot of arrows. And that is one. If you go on a vegan diet and you are strictly vegan 100% of the time, that will in fact reduce your carbon footprint. 4.5 tons per year. And I want to say this again. If you grow a garden and manage to meet half of your food needs with your garden, that will cut your carbon footprint 5 tons per year. But wait, there's more. 
if you happen to have a double lot or you live in a suburban area and you grow a big garden and you manage to meet 90% of your food needs plus 10% of the food needs for 10 other people, that will cut your carbon footprint by 19 tons. So, the thing I want to point out here, the thing I want to stress is that I think that that um, traveling a vegan path is noble. Not for me, but it is noble. And at the same time, I think gardening is going to do far more for your carbon footprint than buying vegan food at a grocery store or at a restaurant. So noble, it makes a difference. It, it It is good, and gardening is better. That is the thing I want to say, which I think I'll get a lot of arrows for. Now, now I'm going to get ten times more arrows, I believe. And, I'm, and, I, and I know that there's a bunch of militant vegans that do not believe it. But I believe that paddock shift systems actually sequester carbon. So if you eat meat from a paddock shift system, you are getting that that could be coming. If it's done well and done correctly, which I think most of them are, but that meat that you consume could have a negative carbon footprint package. There. This is my opinion based on my experience doing paddock ship systems as well as all of my research into this space. And so I'm going to put it out there, and I'm sure that I'm going to get thousands of arrows for it. Hi, this is Mark. There are a lot of reasons to get angry these days, but I prefer to focus on the positive things that we each can do to make this world a better place. The book, Building a Better World in Your Backyard, Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys, is a great resource for just that. Instead of throwing my arms up in frustration at governments or big corporations, there's a list of ideas that we each can tackle to affect change. Information about this book and other resources can be found at permies.com. But well, I'm just going to say this. We look, we understand the, to some degree, we understand pretty well the dynamics of what we, we're calling rotationally gray systems. This, this is based upon, um, uh, biomimicry. It's based upon mimicking a natural cycle of, um, ruminants and, and pasturelands, uh, you know, uh, in, in nature. We know that this is a massively carbon sequestering system. Um, so anybody who wants to argue that I think just basically has a fundamental misunderstanding of ecology and, and physics. Um, now there are people who might want to make an argument about the ethics of eating an animal. That's a whole different argument to me. What I'm talking about here is simply the physics and the ecology of whether these kinds of systems, natural systems, of um, large herbivores on rangeland, you know, is is carbon sequestering or not? And that is a that to me is a is a completely settled issue. Um, 
you see historically in, say, the, the um, central plains of the United States where you had these large ruminant systems uh, with top predators causing what we were basically the ecological example that we're using to drive what would be called rotational grazing today, some of the largest amount of soil organic matter sequestered in soil we ever found on the planet. Um, it is a hugely carbon negative system when it is done in a way that mimics that particular ecosystem. And I think that any, anybody who's wanting to argue with that at this point in time is, is, is got probably more of a political agenda than they do, um, anything else. Um, so what I would basically say is if you want to make the argument about the ethics of eating meat or not eating meat, that to me is a completely separate question as to whether or not large ruminants um, on uh, rangeland um, that are being moved actively by top predators is an environmentally and ecologically important means by which the planet self-regulates. I think that is clear. Um, and um, so I would tend to agree, Paul, with your assessment Then, when properly done, um, that um, you can you you can use rotational grazing to sequester carbon, and I would also say that when you are doing a monstrosity like a confinement feedlot, you are doing exactly the opposite, and you are creating another environmental disaster. I agree, um, and and I I kind of and so I'm going to take my position on uh, paddock shift systems or rotational grazing. And say these are my opinion, and I'm sure that I will be lynched for this opinion later. Um, and uh, as I generally am, and uh, uh, and 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 granted, Alan, you've taken a much bolder stance in saying it has been proven utterly, repeatedly, completely, and um, that's been my understanding as well. Yeah. And when and whenever I am told that, oh, it's been utterly disproved. When I look at the this this what they're talking about, it's easy to find holes in this so-called proof of it being a negative. Um, and it's like, uh, but then those I I think that those people they can't hear this other presentation. They've they've already heard hundreds of times from their friends or whatever the materials that they consume that it's all lies and whatever else and so it's it's so you know all right whatever um well let me just say this it's like if you are talking about um grain finished animals like a ruminant such as a cow and you are doing this thing of pulling them off of pasture and then taking them to a confinement feedlot and then growing large amounts of, say, a grain of some sort, and then feeding that animal grains, which its system is not designed, by the way, to have that much grain, okay. making them sick in the process, yeah. and and you're you're doing all this stuff of of you know grain agriculture, harvesting it, bringing it, feeding it to the cattle in a confinement feedlot. This to me is a, is a complete atrocity. And it is ecologically a disaster. And yes, if you're talking about that system, I agree with you. If you're talking about a system that deeply mimics 
the natural ecosystem, then it's very hard to argue, at least if you are looking at it in any systematic fashion that I'm aware of, that um, it is, uh, well, you come look at it. When Europeans arrive on this continent, there are areas where this had been going on as a natural ecosystem for a long time in which we had pretty much one of the, 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 the wealthiest inheritances of soil organic matter rich topsoil that had ever been found anywhere on the planet. You're talking about places where topsoil in excess of 20% soil organic matter was over 10 feet deep in places, which is a tremendous amount of sequestered carbon. Um, and, um, and, and just an insane amount of topsoil and very, very carbon rich topsoil that had been produced by this system of say bison, um, that were, um, on this, you know, on the rangeland, uh, being moved mostly, uh, with the impetus of the gray wolf, for example, up in the, the middle rangeland. So that system is completely ecologically different. And, um, so I want to make that distinction very clear, um, the distinction between um, regenerative uh, rotational grazing practices and the the mess that is modern confinement feedlot um, system, which to me um, is also uh, cruel and uh, no animal should be subjected to such a thing. I think that the thing I want to emphasize the most, and while I, I believe in the paddock shift systems really make a, a big difference in sequestering carbon, and it's profound and amazing and stunning, I want to state that for the record, the thing I advocate when it comes to food choices, the thing I advocate most of all, grow a garden. And basically, the more you grow, the more you reduce your personal carbon footprint, which is what we're talking about today. And so um, it is it is a big, big piece. And not only that, but for the average adult American, um, food systems are 35% of their carbon footprint and 50% of their petroleum footprint. And so by growing a garden, you make a dramatic difference in reducing your petroleum footprint, more, more dramatic than your carbon footprint. And I think, I think for a lot of people, that is a big one right there. That is profound. That's huge. Yes. So, yeah. Of course, uh, you know, I, I would, I would just, you know, come back and say, remember, I, I always come at it from the global perspective, which is, to me, when I hear you, Paul, say grow a garden, um, what I'm hearing is, you know, grow your own food in whatever is the most ecologically correct way. If you're in the, the tropics, then you're going to have an awful lot of perennial food system because that's what, you know, with only a, a lesser amount of annual food production, um, whereas what you're doing in, say, the, tro- the, the, the temperate regions up where Paul is, it looks a lot more like most people would think of as a garden off the top of their head. In other words, annual crop production. So it's like, do what is the ecologically most advantageous mode of food production for your climate zone. So I'm saying grow a garden, but that can mean so many different things. I mean, if we yeah. want to start talking about perennials, 
Yeah. You know, you know, it's, it's like, that's going to be so much smarter and so much easier and so much better. If you want to talk about Google culture, yeah. oh man, I could talk about, I have talked about Google culture for a lot, but, um, there's so many other things in these types of gardens, but, but basically what we tried to do is to leave gardening very vague. But when we did all of the work for writing a building a better world in your backyard, we did all of the math and all of that stuff that we, we left what type of garden you do to be very vague. But, yeah. but now the food that you're eating is not coming from a factory and, and a lot of people are like, Oh, I only eat food that comes from my local farm. And it's like, that opens up a, a big door also. And it's kind of like, um, odds are that that it's not organic and that a lot of petroleum was, was used. A lot of carbon footprint happened to get that food to exist. And you might think that getting the food from the farm to you as a low carbon footprint, but the odds are that it's actually a higher carbon footprint than the food at the grocery store. And I know that sounds very counterintuitive, but I think I've gone into it in this podcast at least three times. So, but I mean, is it, for those of you that have listened to like all of my podcasts or most of my podcasts, have I, I've talked about that, right? Local versus uh, a grocery store. I see thumbs going up. So um, thank you, Katie. Uh, and uh, I, I want to talk about it, you know, again, for, you know, sure. But the, but the big thing is, is that hyper local is what you want. Something within walking distance. Mm-hmm. As opposed to any time you're going to fire up any kind of vehicle and drive, because most of the average farm that people are getting their food from is 40 minutes away. That's a fair bit of driving, whether they brought it to you in a way that was probably not particularly efficient per calorie of food, or you went to get it in a way that was even less efficient per calorie of food. So um, the key is, is that if it's hyper-local, if you grow it in your own garden, or if somebody's two blocks away and you buy a bunch of food from that person, um, this is the stuff where you start really cutting your your carbon footprint. I want to talk about other values of gardening and things like that. But I mean, I think we're all gardeners. And so I know I'm, I'm singing to the choir here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I mean, when I was presencing, there was the idea that some people, when you say the word garden, it, it tends to, you know, it push into their head, this idea of row crops of annuals, like, you know, uh, tomatoes and cucumbers and so forth. But what we're talking about here, when we say garden is a, is a much broader, much richer, term and it, it can look very different than that what some people who might might think when you just use that word. I think for a lot of people they're gonna have chickens mm-hmm. and the chickens get the the scraps from the house and so in the end they don't actually feed their chickens any chicken feed. They get just scraps from the house. And then um 
then you're going to get a bunch of eggs. You get a bunch of, well, chicken. Um, and uh, so there's that. There's going to be apple trees. There's going to be grapes. There's going to be sunchokes. There's going to be rhubarb plants. There's going to be hopefully a plethora of perennial foods that uh, require uh, pretty much no care. Now, you could, you could grow a garden where it requires a lot of care, and that's your own personal choice. But there's also ways to grow a lot more food. You can take a quarter-acre lot, and if you do a lot of work for 10 years, you can eventually get to the point where you can grow enough food to feed one person on that lot um, without any inputs from off-site. But it's a long path, and it's a permaculture path, and it's a lot got a lot of perennials to it. But it's like, and it's going to require a lot of work every year. Whereas if you somehow have one whole acre, you can easily grow enough food for one or two people with hardly any effort at all. Ta-da! Okay, so, um, Mr. Booker, I don't know how much more time you have, but what we've been doing is back and forth. You pick a thing, and then I pick a thing, and then you pick a thing, and then I pick a thing. Like, and and I and I said that when I picked this one, food systems. Where does your food come from? And carbon footprint. I said this is probably the last one because we're probably out of time. Did you want to keep going, or do we have to call it a day? I think I'm gonna have to call it here pretty soon. Um... I would, I would say that, you know, without getting a chance to go into it, that, um, we talked about buildings and so we, I mean, let's, let's kind of recap for a second, right? We, we started off with heat and heating buildings, schooling buildings and that sort of stuff and which is huge. And I think that's, I think we both agree that that is probably the highest leverage point. And then we also got into buildings. And we talked about transportation a little bit. We talked about food. And I think we are probably that, yes, with these things, we have surfaced some of the highest leverage bits um, and that are practical for people to um, uh, individually address. Right. And and think about. So, I, I mean, there's other places I could go with that. We could talk about like community level. Oh, um, see, now that's a big one. That one's yeah. huge. That one yeah. can cut your carbon footprint in half. Right exactly. There. Right. So when we get into that, things that are that are happening at like the community level, now we can really go. But we were really here focused on what people can do individually. And so I think we've we've hit a lot of that. I could really talk about like land use patterning and and walkability and and. and Setting things up where, you know, you don't really even want to own that, um, electric vehicle because, you know, you don't really need to drive very far very often. And therefore, you know, that big electric vehicle with all of its overhead is more of a you know, nuisance and an expense than it is a benefit. Things like that. We could get, we can go in that direction. But I think the things that we have pulled out so far are probably plenty of homework for the people who are really interested in doing a thing. Um, and if they start with what things we've talked about so far, they're definitely going to be looking at the highest leverage interventions that are going to get the most return on investment for them. 
if they start where we've we've discussed? I, I think it's it's the best. These, these have been the most powerful things to start with. I mean, there are there are other things like you know when you start talking about how to reduce your energy use around the house, just in general, like little things. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's lists of stuff that we could talk about, and we can even list them off with how many tons per year does this you know make a difference of. Um, uh, and of course, a lot of people are convinced that they've done everything that they can that is possible to do because they went out and they bought some sort of light bulb. And um, and I got to say that actually you probably made things worse. It'll say right on there, you know, how much energy you saved and everything like and all the stuff on the box, like oh, it's so good and it's so. And I and I I. And it, the Better World book, that was a big part of Sean, my co-author. Sean's focus was on um, how LED light bulbs are not what you think and how you're going to actually be able to save a lot more money with something that's going to be more like the old school incandescence. And I know that almost everybody listening to this podcast is probably thinking that that's absolutely crazy. But I think Sean does a very good job of, of, of pointing out how. it's It's like... If if you're going to be a dumbass about it, but then you're right. If it's like LED uses much less electricity than incandescent. If all you're after is light, and you're a stupid fuck, and there's no way that you can do anything more about it. But I I think that if you are smart about it, that it turns out that you can use an incandescent light to save you. Because if you switch all your incandescent lights over to LED. And, and you save, you, you believe that you've saved something like $4 a month on your electric bill. Goody for you. But I can use an incandescent light to save $900 a year off of my electric heat bill. <laughs> and, and it's like, uh, which I think $900 is more than that $4, $900 a year is far more than that $4 per month. Um, that's what my math says. But so, so Alan, if a person dumbly switches from incandescent to LED lights, what do you suppose is the average savings per month by making that change? Ooh, boy, that's a, that's a hard one simply because um, like we're, I'm looking right now and triaging um, the fact that like where I'm living right now, blended average, um, Rate is about nine uh, cents per kilowatt hour, but we're we're working with some labs over in Germany right now where it's like almost seventy cents per kilowatt hour. So it's really depend. It's, it's becoming very place dependent on how much you're saving because um, I'm in the area where we have Tennessee Tennessee Valley Authority, and therefore we're pretty cheap per kilowatt hour. But then you go different places around the country, and that rate can more than double. So Hard to give an exact number, except to say that when you start doing the math based upon all of the other things we're talking about, the amount of dollar signs we're, we're, we're discussing in terms of lighting is a small fraction of everything else. So whatever your, whatever your electric bill is, um, your lighting is going to be a small percentage of that, and therefore it's a it's a point of small leverage of intervention. 
I would have right. said that if somebody switched from incandescent lights to LED lights and they saved $20 a month, I'd be really curious, like, how many light bulbs do you have burning 24 hours a day? I, I'm kind of curious, like, what – I think we should have a a, a, a a big talk about what are you doing to yeah. use – to have that many light bulbs going that much, where it makes yes. that much of a difference, that is right. just nuts. Well, I, I got one other thing I have to say, which is, you know, in this, again, I keep on wanting to back up. This is, this is, every time we get into this conversation, I'm like, oh, we're talking about carbon, and it's such a narrow focus, because I keep on feeling like we're, we're, we're getting into the conversation of, yep, we have all these problems, the infection is set in, and there's all these problems, and we're talking about the fact that by doing this thing, we can reduce your, your fever by, you know, 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's like, uh, it's like, you know, why are we using these light bulbs when we have daylight outside and why are we not daylighting our buildings? And, um, um, I want to, let me see here. Let's see if we can do this really quick. Cause this, this, this is, this will, this is something that I think about a lot. I'm going to go over here to my window and I'm going to point my little meter out the window at the sun and <laughs> do you do you hear anything paul do you hear a buzzy sound i don't hear anything exactly there's no buzzy sound because the sun doesn't flicker <laughs> how about this can you hear that yeah i can hear that here i'll i'll do it where i can actually you can actually like hear it you hear that I don't that, know. I, I thought I heard something where it went, like it was turning on a fluorescent light where it goes blink, 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 blink. Oh, yeah. It's, well, the whole problem is that Zoom tries to, like, filter out noise, and I tried to set it where it wouldn't. But yeah. what you had there was this nasty buzzing so- sound from my um, meter telling – I turned an LED light bulb on that I have here in the hallway, and um, it's buzzy at me because this is um, – this light flickers. And it's a very poor quality of light because of all that flicker. And we have, um, even now the IEEE has acknowledged that flicker in light bulbs is, is a problem for us as biological organisms, right? So it's like all these other dimensions into this discussion that we're not even getting into. It's like we as a biological organism respond to daylight in so many ways. And then we're like, oh, no, 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 we're going to build these buildings in which the daylight's held out and we're going to use artificial light. So to me, the, in terms of talking about artificial light, it's like, oh heavens, the, the energy use of that is minor compared to the health, uh, uh, impacts of using artificial light and so forth. So yeah, to me, oh, we don't want to get, get me off and talking about, um, talking about that because that's, that, that I'm, has me thinking about all kinds of different things. I'm the same way. I mean, we talked about the apple a day a hundred tons. We talked about heat being 29 tons. Possibly. We talked about food systems being 10.4 tons. And when we start talking about light, I believe we're talking about something in the order of 0.02 tons per year. So it's like, it's, it's trivial. It's, it's trivial. It's it's so tiny. Um, if you want to talk about things around the house, I would say, um, how you dry your clothes is a big one. Just get a rack, throw your clothes on the rack, yep. and and that is a massive savings. I'd say 
washing your clothes with cold water. Uh, another one is going poolless. I mean, uh, I think uh, going poolless, if I remember correctly, is 0.25 tons per year. Um, so, and I've talked about going poolless in this podcast many, many times before. I mean, there's all kinds of little things around the house. There's stuff about do you have a lawn and how do you care for your lawn? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, so I'd say that, you know, there's lists and lists and lists of other little things, but I think we covered the bigs. We did. Know? And I would, I would come back to the whole idea. The reason I, I, I said in the beginning that heat is because if you look at the other things that you just listed, Paul, it's like they almost have, all have something to do with heat, right? It's like, oh, well, how about drying your clothes? Well, oh, heat, right? Yeah. There's a, a lot of, a lot of the energy in that is actually from the heating elements that are, Blowing hot air through your clothes, and then what else? Um, hmm. Um, you know, uh, all, all these other, all the other things that we're we were talking about in terms of like hot water and cooking food, and you know, cooking food is again producing heat, and you know, so it, a lot of it has to do with the management of heat. So what I would say is, anytime you're looking around the house and you're finding something that either has to do with producing heat or getting rid of heat. This is probably a more substantial load. Um, and um, ways in which you can think about reducing that and doing it in ways that are more natural are going to probably be higher leverage points of improving your overall quality of life, the amount of energy that's being you know, used, reducing it, and, and being more ecological. So think about that um, in terms of, um, uh, it, you know, what are we doing with, with heat um, as a as a, a clue as to look what to look at when you are thinking about um, whether it's a major issue or not. I think there's a lot of off grid people where they are they are certain that the best way to heat their home is to get a bigger solar grid and then heat their home with um, uh, a heat pump of some kind. And they're yeah. thinking that that is smart. And then also they've got an even an even bigger solar grid and that way they can run their clothes dryer. No oh, heavens. Yeah. It, it seems nuts to me. Okay. Uh, Katie, you got your hand up. What's going on? I have a question. Alan, you work in lots of different biomes. What should I look into? Um, to look into doing cooling. The forest fires here have made it challenging. I visit yeah. family in the Northwest, in the Pacific Northwest sometimes, and the forest fires have made it challenging to cool by opening our windows at night as we would normally do. We have asthma. Yeah. And do you have anything to look into? Yeah. Yeah. Um, without, I know Katie doesn't want to give an exact location, but we'll just say that she's in the subtropics slash tropics. So, um, which basically means that you know, heating is not the big issue. Cooling is really much more of a thing. And not only that, but in many of the areas in the tropics and subtropics, because we're talking about here the humid tropics and subtropics, management of humidity is a big issue, right? So it's like, um, you, you, um, to me, the right place to start when you're talking about the overall patterning is patterning the buildings themselves because what we've ended up doing in a lot of cases is throwing buildings that are actually patterned for temperate climates into these um, 
these, these subtropical and tropical environments and you have a huge amount of thermal mass, which gains a lot of heat. And now you've basically created for yourself this issue of, um, how do I cool a building, um, in an environment in which thermal mass is basically heat collector. And so what you've done is you've moved a lot of thermal mass. Um, a lot of mass to create a building, and then it's become a heat collector that you now have to spend energy on actively cooling. And so, obviously, my my first big answer is that in a lot of those environments, high thermal mass buildings in the first place are a problem, um, and that part of the whole approach to it over long term is to think carefully about that, about um orienting buildings towards um towards um uh, uh, cooling breezes but as as you're saying Katie it's like well now we got fires that are causing that to be a problem so it's like well are the the fires a given no in those kinds of environments oftentimes that is the and that is the outcome of um environmental mismanagement um where um basically Non-natives have been allowed to establish at scale and now are creating um, ongoing fire issues. So that's a separate problem. I mean, really the right pattern would be to correct the ecosystemic issues that are causing fire. Okay. Cause it has a lot of other things that needs to, that, that, that fixes. And we've and already that, recorded a, a podcast that I think is really excellent on that topic. Yeah. A, a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. And then, but so it's, it's like what's happening, Katie, is like you're being backed into a corner, right? It's like, oh, we got buildings that are not right for the environment because they are big thermal massy kind of buildings and therefore they collect heat. And then how do we get rid of all that heat? Well, I mean, there's obvious things about breezes, which are problematic because of other things. And then obviously shading, because if you're in that, in an area there, it's like, you, you, you aren't looking for thermal gain, so shading is huge. And, um, so I would say obviously, if that's not already there, how do you get maximal shading over the building? Um, and then you're down to, well, okay, well, all that's been done. How do I, I do it? And you're like, well, what's the least bad option if I have to go to mechanical cooling? Because if you're like, uh, I can't, you know, I'm in a building that's going to heat up and um, I can't open the windows to get breezy bits, then you're down to uh, what is for your particular area the least detrimental way of cooling that particular building. And, um, you know, I would say the first thing is make certain that if you do have a high thermal mass building that you, you know, make certain the insulation is as good as possible so that once you do cool the inside that you don't get it in, you know, the heat coming back in quickly. And then you basically look at what is the most reasonable thing for your particular circumstance um, and on the size of the house. And you might get pushed to something like a mini split or a, you know, um, uh, a heat pump kind of solution just because you're in a situation where the building itself and the ecology around you push you to that kind of solution. So I don't know, Katie, if that's helpful at all. Thank you so much. I feel like I've got about 
two and a half to three hours of stuff to say down this road. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> and, and it would be probably a podcast all on its own, but let's see if I could just shoot a few things out real quick. First of all, I would grow some big ass trees. Yeah. That's the shading. And, and it's like not just shading, but layers of shading. It's yes. like if you've ever stood at the foot of a tree that's like 150 feet tall and on a hot day, it's it's a good 15 to 20 degrees cooler under that tree, and there's like yes. a downdraft pouring onto you of this coolness. It is profound. Yeah. Um, and so uh, a lot of times when people struggle with very high air conditioner bills in a hot area, they have zero escaping out front, which is acting like um, an oven. It's, it's a heat collector, and yes. it's kind of like I would like to see them have – a bunch of different trees. Uh, the next one, you mentioned thermal mass, and I thought you were going to talk about wafatis. And I, aren't you doing some experiments in your warmer climates with, with wafatis? I'm not sure it would work for Katie, but um, be, because it's she's... Not, not wafati because we just have such high humidity here. Right. Um, and and any kind of earth-coupled building, I know it's, I'm not calling an underground building, I'm calling it earth-coupled yeah. Any kind of earth coupled building has a lot of challenges with humidity control. So yeah. I am working with buildings with green roofs, but the walls are not earth coupled. Green roof is an example of something that dramatically cools a home. Correct. Dramatically. Yes. Um, I'd say layers of shade for the building. So, uh, this year at the, um, uh, at our summer events, we put in a giant cable that ran over the classroom and we hooked sunshades up to that giant cable, thus putting shade over the building. And uh, the results of just that were pretty profound. To just get the sun off of the building, um, mm-hmm. that made a big difference. And to get shade around the building in addition to that, made a big difference. Layers of shade uh, make, is, is a profound thing. Yeah. So I kind of feel like uh, somewhere I wrote a thing, like how to cool in the summer, and I think I've got like 20 different ideas that I put in there, many of which we're implementing here now or we're starting to implement. But I think that there's a lot to be done. For us, we've got uh, something that's really convenient. Like when we have a rocket mass heater in the building, it really cools things out. I think about seven degrees. And I, I have a video that kind of describes that. But it uses a principle of like, well, at night it's it's like uh, 55 or 60, even though the day will be really hot. And, um, and we open the windows. But I think a lot of uh, tropical and subtropical places, I'm not sure that will make a lot of difference. Um because, you know, at night, it's going to be almost as warm as it was during the day. And so it's kind of like it's probably not getting you a lot there. All right. Alan, yeah. I'm thinking it's time to – if you've got any last-minute things that you want to throw in there about cutting a, a personal carbon footprint, now's a good time to say it. Hmm. I think I'm going to leave it where we, we are because, yes, we can keep on going for a long time. But like I said, I think we've given people who are interested and plenty of homework with the high leverage things to keep them busy for a good long time. Yeah, I agree. All right. Thank you, Alan.
If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about carbon footprint, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Have you ever wondered whether a particular book was really good or just so-so, and if you could trust the reviews online? When it comes to books related to permaculture, Permies has a large list of reviews for over 100 books. Perhaps you're considering a book for yourself or a friend, or you're just curious about what's out there. Stop by permies.com forward slash book and take a look at the book review grid and read some honest reviews, and hopefully you'll find the next book to add to your collection.